1: And so we come to the end of yet another week on Political Rewind. It is Friday, July 9th. And as always, I'm very glad to have you all with us for the show. Before I introduce the panel and we start uh, conversations about new political topics, a quick note about our show yesterday. Many of you heard us talk to uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory uh, School of Medicine, Grady Health System, Um, one of the leading experts on uh, the coronavirus out there, Karen Landman, uh, epidemiologist, and uh, Andy Miller of Georgia Health News. And one of the questions that we talked about through the show was this issue of whether a booster shot was going to be necessary uh, to protect, particularly against the new variants, but, but also to extend the uh, uh, efficacy of the uh, one or two shots that people have gotten, whether it's Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, or Pfizer. So now we're hearing this news that Pfizer has decided to move forward with um, looking at starting clinical trials as to how important a booster might be. Yesterday, our panel said that there were going to be efforts to make that decision, but that there's every reason to believe, and most public health officials and scientists agree, that if you've had the full vaccine uh, regimen, you've had the two shots, uh, or the one from Johnson & Johnson, you're pretty uh, well protected. So this continues to be a somewhat confusing matter for all of us, but it's not because anyone's trying to mislead you. It's that this is all new territory. We're still trying to understand Uh, this virus. If you didn't hear the show yesterday, it's available on our podcast or on our website, and it's really worth listening to. Uh, We got a lot of really interesting uh, questions answered by our panel for the show. All right, let's jump right into our panel for today. It's Friday, which means Patricia Murphy, who I said right before the show, you are the peripatetic Patricia Murphy. (laughs) That's my $10 word for the day. You have decided in the middle of the week, you've gone on a tour across the state to talk to voters about just what's on their minds as the 2022 election cycle approaches, right?
0: Yeah, well, actually, this is going to be a project that I do all summer. I'm calling it my Georgia Politics Road Trip. Um, I'm going to different cities across the state, and I did have to start with Savannah, Um because it's just such a great city. I started in Savannah, talked to elected leaders there, voters um, as well. And I'm going to be doing that all over the state um, because we hear from AJC readers um, that, and I heard from many of them, that the jolt in the morning is their only source of political news. Mm. Um, Their own small town Mm. papers have have closed. And so I want the rest of the state to know about the rest of the state and and the politics that are driving our election cycles. So Thank you very
1: much. Uh, In your column from Savannah, and we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about who you talked to while you were down there and what you learned. But before we get uh, to that a little later in the show, you said at the beginning of your column on Savannah... Uh, one of the reasons you went there first is it was the first place that people gave you recommendations for good restaurants. I hope, Patricia, before you <laughs> left, you got to Mashama Bailey's The Grey, for goodness sake. I hope that was on your <laughs> list. It's one of the greatest <laughs> restaurants <laughs> in the country.
0: I know. No, but I did make it to a biscuit company.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I needed to yeah. a lot of...
0: I mean, I haven't had a biscuit in 20 years, and I had multiple in Savannah this week.
1: (laughs) Oh Well, all right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for sharing a little about that with us. Uh, Chuck Williams is here. He's a reporter for WRBL-TV in Columbus, but has had a long career as a print journalist covering politics uh, for uh, the Columbus newspaper. And uh, Chuck, we're awfully glad to have you back. You continue, although you are now more of a general assignment reporter, you continue to pay close attention to Georgia politics. I do, and I'm so glad to hear Patricia's going to the other Georgias. I mean, there, there's a whole other world outside
2: of, the, outside of Atlanta. And when she comes down to Columbus, Hall, will give her some really good restaurant.
1: restaurant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Representative Chuck Evstration is uh, back with us. Uh, He represents District 104 up there in Gwinnett County. Uh, Chuck is a Republican. He's the chair of the Judiciary uh, Committee in the State House, an important position. Chuck, is it okay, since we get to see each other on Webex, to tell our listeners you have got a great beard, an off-session beard going? You
3: you can tell when we're out of session since uh, we finished at the end of March I haven't had to, uh, I've been able to save some time in the morning by uh, by not shaving each day. And I, I am jealous of Patricia. I think she's going to have some great barbecue and uh, many more great biscuits as she travels around the state at different political <laughs> events. Uh, <laughs> I
1: think that's right. Uh, we're also joined uh, for the first time and very right. glad to welcome to our show, uh, Senator <coughs> Michelle Au, who is, represents a very wide, widely dispersed Senate, uh, district, uh, Michelle, your district 48, which, what is it? Johns Creek is part of the district. Um, Duluth is part of the district. Tell us a few, tick off a few more areas that you represent.
4: That's right, Bill. It is a wide and eccentrically shaped swath of uh, North Fulton and Gwinnett County. So it also includes parts of Petrie Corners, a tiny sliver of Alpharetta, um, Swanee, Lawrenceville, just all, all up there. So I'm really pleased to be here with my fellow Gwinnett legislator, uh, mm-hmm. Representative Restoration, it's really great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: because it's your first time on the show, just a little bit more background, if we can. You are a first generation uh, 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 t- a daughter of uh, I- uh, parents who immigrated from Ch- from Hong Kong, I believe, in the mid '60s. They're both in medicine, have been in medicine, and you are an anesthesiologist, right?
4: That is correct, and it's especially significant uh, since we were talking about Senate District 48 to be a first-generation Chinese-American representing this district because, as we know, Gwinnett County is rapidly diversifying, and particularly Senate District 48 has a large percentage of our AAPI community, which I proudly serve along with all the rest of our, um, our people here. And um, I think that as of the last census, meaning the 2010 census, obviously we're still awaiting the new numbers, it was a more than 24% AAPI. So it's, it's very meaningful for me, and I'm so glad to be here.
1: Yeah, well, there's no one who knows how diverse that district has become become better than Chuck Efstration, who increasingly is uh, in a position, right, Chuck, where you as a Republican are uh, mindful of the fact that the district around you has become increasingly Democratic. And and it's always been an interesting, uh, it's always been interesting to watch how you maneuver through all that, Chuck.
3: Well, President Biden won my legislative district in the election, and um, I've, as we have discussed before, I really believe that voters locally know me, they know the work that I do at the state capitol, and they've been willing to support me, irrespective of uh, the political affiliation they may feel that they have. And so I think that that's good. Uh, politics should be local like that, and I'm honored to, to continue to serve.
1: Okay. Um, Patricia Murphy, can we start by talking about um, the fact that Brian Kemp has now officially launched his bid... re-election. He was down in middle Georgia yesterday where he uh, declared that he is going to run on the conservative values that he says Georgia voters expected he would promote as governor. And he's already uh, put up his first commercial which goes directly at the woman he expects to be running against, Stacey Abrams. So let's listen to that and then discuss uh, the Kemp campaign.
3: This week, We should be celebrating baseball. Instead, Stacey Abrams and the liberal mob forced the all-star game to move, despite the fact that we made it easier to vote and harder to cheat. They'll put their political agenda ahead of jobs, small business, even the truth. Here's my commitment. Secure, accessible, and fair elections will always remain the foundation of who we are as a state. And I'm not backing down from this fight. Let's go Braves.
1: Patricia, he uh, also his campaign in their financial disclosure report uh, said he's raised more than $12 million already. Uh, He has nine plus million dollars in cash on hand and raised more than three in just the last campaign reporting period, last three months alone. He's in a good position uh, to uh, uh, he's in a strong position going into this race. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. He is uh, has a huge head start against anybody else who might get into this race. $12 million um, is just a ton of cash, and it speaks to the fact that anybody who gets in at this point um, would likely be a self-funder or have access to tons of money. Um, also, uh, those are publicly reported donations, and it is also putting uh, supporters on the record that they are with Brian Kemp, even if they're also with Donald Trump. And I think that's really important for people to be coming, not out of the woodwork, but standing up publicly and saying, yes, I'm for Kemp, despite the fact that he's got this enormous um, rivalry uh, only on the side of Donald Trump. So he's, he's coming in very strong and obviously already running against Stacey Abrams, even though she has not officially announced what she's doing yet.
1: Uh, Chuck Williams, we do need to point out, of course, that there are still Trump allies out there who uh, continue to attack him. Rudolph Giuliani uh, uh, being one of them, Corey Lewandowski, another. And they keep hinting at the fact that there's a big-name Republican waiting in the wings to take on Kemp in a primary. Well, as Bill, as Patricia pointed
2: out, that big-name Republican better come with a big checkbook because you're not going to be able— to overcome a $12 million head start overnight, unless you've got it in the bank yourself. And what's really interesting about this to me is Governor Kemp's walking a fine line, and he has walked it all the way to this point. It's clear President Trump doesn't like him, despises him, would love to see him defeated. But what's out there right now is not working for many in the Republican base, at least the ones I talked to here in this part of the state. So it's going to be really interesting to see if they can, if Trump can lure somebody with a name in there. But you know, Governor Kemp's in a pretty good from where he was a year ago. I think all of us that watch this would say Governor Kemp is in a much better position now going into the startup of the Republican camp primary campaigning than you would have suspected he would have been a year ago.
1: Um, Chuck Estration and, and then Michelle Au, uh, here's the statement that came from uh, Kemp's campaign manager, uh, Bobby Sapporo, uh, yesterday uh, when the campaign launched. Brian Kemp has a strong conservative record of fighting for life, standing up for law enforcement, cutting taxes, protecting lives and livelihoods against the COVID-19 pandemic, and defending election integrity. Uh, Are those uh, the issues that you believe Georgia voters are going to uh, uh, want to reelect him to continue uh, on that same path?
3: Absolutely, Bill. Governor Kemp has a strong record both for the Republican primary and for the general election. I mean, he shepherded the state through a pandemic that we have no parallel for. Uh, he has seen to it that uh, Georgia is a leader in many areas where uh, we need to be leading. Uh, he, he is uh, addressing the issue of rampant crime in the city of Atlanta. He's um, taken on this issue of MLB moving the All-Star Game from the state of Georgia, which hurts local businesses. And frankly, voters, I think, can uh, see the governor's accomplishments for what they are and his strong record and that's going to serve him well with the $9 million in cash on hand and only more money coming in. There's no way he can be taken out in the primary. And I think he's got a really strong record to run on next November.
1: Uh, Michelle, I want to bring you in, but I do want to do one quick fact check. Um, He attacks Stacey Abrams as being, uh, he names her as being responsible for major league baseball, pulling the all-star game. I think it's important to point out that immediately Uh, When the cries for that were uh, uh, going up among some Democrats, Stacey Abrams said, we don't want to talk about pulling the all-star game. We shouldn't be talking about boycotts. Um, There were other Democrats who were, but he is including Stacey Abrams in, in, in that crowd, and she wasn't one of those people.
4: Thank you for bringing that up, Bill, and that's an important point is that Stacey Abrams really right away pointed out that pulling Major League Baseball and other types of boycotts would hurt the very people um, that our actions are trying to help. But what I want to point out, actually, is that what we're seeing with how the governor's race is shaping up in this moment is really we're seeing a very divided uh, Republican Party with um, any candidates, including Governor Kemp, concerned for their own political survival, really running to the far right, sort of more Trumpist flank of their party, despite election results that we saw here in Georgia in 2020 that showed that the majority of Georgia voters have rejected these types of ideologies. And of course, you know, it's the elephant in the room is I find it interesting that an incumbent sitting governor in the majority party is being uh, so roundly primaried uh, by Vernon Jones and also potentially, as we've been talking about, by possibly Herschel Walker. And Governor Kemp is essentially running for his political life even before the marquee Democratic candidate has um, formally declared But again, I I think this shows um, the degree to which the Republican Party has fractured, broadly speaking, into sort of a more Trumpist wing and the more traditional sort of GOP 2.0 that uh, LG Duncan and others have been trying to breathe life into. And I worry and I wonder if this fracturing is going to lead inevitably to a lot of sort of infighting and self-inflicted wounds within the party and essentially a cannibalization of their own voter base uh, well ahead of the general election.
1: Um, I think Herschel Walker, of course, is being talked about for the U.S. Senate race against Raphael Warnock, oh, yes, but you're right, uh, uh, we'll watch how that develops. Patricia?
0: So, you know, when Senator Al talks about this fracture within the Republican Party, it's very real. Uh, it is just undeniable. You, we hear it everywhere we go. But what Brian Kemp manages to do with this ad and by really focusing on election reform is that's the one issue that Republicans all agree on with a small number of, I would say, kind of more moderate um, slash independent Republicans who have not bought into the whole election fraud um, uh, trope from uh, Donald Trump. Uh, But it is the one issue that Donald Trump is especially focused on still. It's the one issue that pulls the highest among Republican voters across the state. And so by really digging into that, Um, Brian Kemp is sort of able to have his cake and eat it too. He's fighting with Donald Trump, but he's focusing on the issue. He signed the bill. And the minute that the major league baseball decision came through, Brian Kemp went out and had a gigantic press conference with tons of Republicans behind him. And that was really the visual to say, okay, yes, Republicans are mad at at Brian, at Brian Kemp, but look at all of these people who feel the same way he does about this issue. And his polling numbers popped up after that and they have not dipped mm-hmm. since. That was the moment he went from the slide that Chuck talked about to the rise that we've been seeing among Republicans recently. So that's why he's digging into it and that will be the issue for him.
1: Uh, Chuck Stration, um, it, there's a, you make a certain bet in a primary campaign uh, that you, you've you got to appeal to your your base. We all know that. Uh, but the bet you make is that that base will then be able to carry you on through a general election that they'll stay with you. There's an awful lot of the Brian Kemp agenda that is not appealing to the Democrats who voted for Joe Biden and gave him a victory in the 2020 presidential race here. Uh, so how does, does how, what is the strategy here? Kemp plays to the base for the primary, as most uh, uh, people do, uh, candidates do. But how does he pivot to win some of that independent or suburban vote that went to Biden uh, after the primary, assuming he wins it?
3: Governor Kemp has a strong record for the general election. I mean, just take this recent legislative session, for example. Governor Kemp helped to pass the repeal of Georgia's citizens arrest law. Georgia is the first state in the country to do so, and it passed the House unanimously. It's really um, an astounding thing to think about with his floor leader carrying the bill. I think that really talking about his record, the historic appointments that have been made, the work that he's done to reach across the aisle, the efforts that are being put forward to address the, or have been put forward to address the uh, coronavirus pandemic, as well as the use of CARES funds going forward, I think that the governor has a very strong record going forward, and and, uh, you're going to be seeing that well into uh, uh, the election season next year. And the final thing I'll say is addressing the issue of rising crime, uh, supporting our police officers who are working so hard, doing great work to protect us, I think is something that is a bipartisan issue. And, And the more greater discussion about this that we'll have going forward is only going to help the governor who has a strong record in this area.
1: All right, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about Brian Kemp's gubernatorial campaign moving forward. So let me just put a finishing touch on that part of it, Uh, Chuck Williams. um, There are give us a sense of. I mean, Columbus is obviously a Democratic stronghold, but you're surrounded by a pretty red part of the state. Uh, How do you see this race shaping up from your perspective down there in that part of the state?
2: I think what Chuck was saying is right that the on the Republican side, and Patricia as well, they are united on the voter part of this. But I think what you're starting to see down here in Columbus proper is blue. It's as blue as blue gets. But you get out into Harris County, you get out in going toward Macon into some of the areas, you know, it's – a troop has got a large Republican um, uh, thing. The Democrats are just as united on the election front as well. I think they're – now trying to figure out ways to make sure that people get to the polls and vote in in numbers that they did in the in the general and the senator runoff runoffs because that's the challenge now on the democratic side is to get as united about about the voter legislation as the republicans are and i think you know, that's probably where some of that fair fight money, that, that $100 million is going to come in, is uniting Democrats and that cause, okay, you've got to figure out a different way. You may not be able to vote this way, but you can still vote this way. And what are there, 272,000 Georgians that are on the voter list that don't have driver's license? The question is, is that number right? Is that number just people that didn't put their driver's license number down when they registered you know, those are the kinds of details you're going to start to see the Democrats trying to work through the weeds on to combat this Republican unity
1: on the voter on the voter issue, for lack of a better word. So, Patricia, let's pick up on uh, Chuck talking about the astonishing amount of money that Fair Fight uh, has raised since uh, Stacey Abrams lost that governor's uh, race to Brian Kemp one hundred million dollars. As we discussed right before the show went on the air, that is not campaign money that Stacey Abrams, assuming she's gonna run, can tap into. Uh, it is, uh, however, an, in, an awesome example of her ability to raise the money she will be able to use in a campaign.
0: Yes, and if you look at how much she raised as not being a candidate at all, not a candidate on no, on no, on any ballot, she raised more than any other presidential campaign did in 2020, except for Trump and Biden. I mean, she is in a stratosphere of um, fame and kind of adoration among Democratic activists that has superseded almost anything I think we've seen. And the issue that she has tapped into on voting rights um, is just something that's so foundational, not just to Democrats, but to um, uh, people of color to people who consider themselves allies of the of the civil rights movement. Um, it is just so powerful, and it really demonstrates that, and it demonstrates how closely associated Stacey Abrams is. With that. Um, Now, Republicans, for the first time, I've never heard this before. um, Republicans, in response to that, um, have been very worried about the mismatch in money. It always was Republicans outraising Democrats, no matter what, no matter when, um, as long as Republicans have been in charge in the state. And even some of the election, um, uh, the campaign finance laws that were passed in the legislature to give Brian Kemp a boost and fundraising um, through leadership committees and Republican members, a boost through leadership committees. That was done because so much Democratic money is expected when Stacey Abrams gets into this race.
1: Michelle, uh, let's pick up on that real briefly. When when Stacey Abrams gets into this race, um, I've asked this of other Democrats, I'll ask it of you. How impatient uh, are you becoming about seeing now that Brian Kemp is officially declared he's already up on the air running an ad against Stacey Abrams. How impatient are you for Stacey Abrams to say something about her likely candidacy? Or do you feel she can afford to wait?
4: I'm not impatient waiting for her to run, and I think she can afford to wait. Obviously, as Patricia noted, she uh, has demonstrated over the past few years her fundraising prowess. And, uh, you know, we talk about Brian Kemp's war chest. I don't think that Stacey Abrams, should she decide to run, uh, is going to have any problem matching that. And I think more importantly than that is the fact that uh, she is such a unifying figure within the Democratic Party. And the fact that, you know, contrasted to the sort of fracturing in the Republican Party that I was mentioning, that the Democrats are sticking together and continuing uh, under her leadership to push on the issues that we feel are most important, chief of which is going to be the empowerment of all Georgia voters, right? Because unlike some of our Republican colleagues, we feel that these sort of little d Democratic values work best when we make voting as accessible as possible and when everyone's voices can be heard. So she is working on that front, and I am not impatient at all. She will declare when she is ready. Okay.
1: um, Thank you for that uh, portion of the conversation today. I'd love to get a break out of the way, uh, because when we come back, we've got a lot of other subjects I'd like to take up on today's edition of Political Rewind. (laughs) Senator Michelle Au, State Representative Chuck F. Strachan, uh, TV Columbus TV reporter Chuck Williams and Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist. I don't think I said that, as I always do at the beginning of the show. You can read Patricia's column in the Wednesday and Sunday editions of the paper. And, of course, she oversees the jolt, which, as she pointed out, is a really wonderful way to get uh, a, a quick look at what's going on in politics across the state at AJ. uh, Uh, Chuck Williams, um, we have two legislative runoff elections coming up next week, one in District 34, where there's actually a Democrat and a Republican facing off against each other, and then down in District 156, where it's two Republicans who are facing off in the runoff. This is the first election that has been operating under the new Georgia election law. And an organization called the Coalition for Good Governance went to federal court uh, recently to try to block two sections of uh, SB202, the new election law, from taking effect, from being implemented in this election. One of them was the new law, which requires uh, that you have to file for an absentee ballot uh, 11 days or more before a runoff. Election and um, the other one, which uh, essentially has, it deals with the oversight that that court that observers, election observers, will have the freedom they have to watch an election, and the point of all this, Chuck, is to say that U.S. District Court Judge J.P. Bully, uh rejected uh, the Coalition for Good Governance lawsuit. Uh, said no. It's the ninth inning. We're not going to let this, uh, we're not going to change at the last minute. But the question becomes, uh, are we Are we getting the first glimpse in this first case of how courts might look at Georgia's new election law? There are eight suit lawsuits out there, including the Department of Justice. You know, Bill, we're doing what journalists
2: do. We're trying to read tea leaves right now. And I think if you look at the order, one of the things that it It's clear from what I saw in it was this was a timing issue. There's not time to deal with that. So I think if you look at that part of it, I think anything we say now is speculation and say, okay, well, this means they're going to strike it down or this this means they're going to stand with it. I mean, I think what you just look at now is the lawsuit wasn't filed in a timely enough manner to deal with the issues in an ongoing election. Ballots had been printed. Everything was kind of already moving. So, I mean, that, I mean, to answer your question, who knows? I mean, that's the
1: way I would kind of look at it. Well, Patricia, let me add one layer to that. We also know that last week the United States Supreme Court made a very important ruling in two challenges, uh, in challenges to two of Arizona's new election laws. Uh, and the court in deciding in favor of the elections uh, laws that, that Arizona put in place essentially Uh, created language that limits even further how the Civil Rights Act can be applied to uh, challenges uh, that are based on whether laws are discriminatory against people of color. They really dramatically uh, narrowed how you can challenge under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So there's a lot of uh, thought that perhaps— the, the courts are going to be mindful of what the Supreme Court did, including uh, perhaps here in district court, Patricia.
0: Yeah, so the Supreme Court decision, I thought, was very relevant Um, for a few reasons. It was a six to three majority, which really reflects uh, the Supreme Court's more conservative balance now um, that Amy Amy Coney Barrett has joined the court. Um, And it talked about the Arizona law, especially the piece that is very similar to something Georgia just passed, where a voter who casts a ballot in the wrong precinct, that ballot will be thrown out. Um, In Georgia, it's unless you do it at five o'clock. and, uh, judge Alito, justice Alito said, um, because of the small size of the disparate impact, they couldn't prove that it affected a lot of people. And also that if they were modest burdens, it wasn't a huge burden. Um, so there's not a zero tolerance policy on this Supreme court for burdens. It just is a modest burden. Um, I think those are important pieces to read. Um, but I do agree with Chuck, um, that, uh, We're just reading tea leaves. We don't know exactly um, what it will do to lower federal courts or even how the Supreme Court will handle these in the future. But it does give us a sense of what this new majority um, is willing to look at and and
4: where their values are on this issue. Michelle? So, you know, I agree that probably most would agree that the SCOTUS ruling that we saw last week makes it harder to use the VRA to challenge racially discriminatory voting laws and that challenge is the substance of many many lawsuits not just uh, the one from the DOJ that have been filed against sb202 i think there are what like eight eight at this point is that right bill there's eight and in fact actually, yes yeah eight so two things though that i'd like to point out the first thing i want to point out is that section two of the vra is still in effect and what's changed with the bonner's decision is that it places much more burden on proving discriminatory intent and with a resultant significant impact, as Patricia was uh, noting. The second thing I want to note is that the DOJ complaint really does, if you read through it, and actually, I'm not a lawyer, right, but I read through this complaint, and it's very easy to read. It does a very nice job also of laying out just the ways um, that Georgia Republicans have been rather explicit in showing this sort of discriminatory intent. And I'm going to point to just um, page 12 of this complaint, which quotes Speaker Ralston as saying on, I believe, a TV call-in show that mailing absentee ballot applications to all active voters would, quote, drive up turnout, and that this increased turnout would be, quote, extremely devastating to the election outcomes that he favored. Um, so as for the result, which is what we're really looking at, the result of how this intent behind SB202 is going to translate into effect sort of remains to be seen. Um, we have to remember that 202 was actually just in stated just a few weeks ago. But given its wide-reaching uh, changes to every single step of the electoral process, that history has shown will have disproportionate effects on communities of color. It's really just a matter of time, and we just need to wait to see how this plays out.
3: Well, I'll just – first of all, about the opinion, I think it's important to note, and it hasn't been mentioned, that the district court found that the law did not violate VRA. Also, the Ninth Circuit initially found that the law did not violate VRA. It was only after that that an en banc panel of the entire Ninth Circuit – held that it did violate the Voting Rights Act. This was the first opportunity for the Supreme Court to, in an opinion, really detail whether or how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act applies. And what they said is that in the Arizona law, there was no impact, as we've heard um, of note, that would violate um, uh, the Voting Rights Act. And also there was no legislative intent uh, that would satisfy the requirement under Section 2. And I think that that's really important to discuss. When uh, general assemblies make decisions to secure the election, to ensure that voting is uh, easy, but also secure. It's hard to cheat. Uh, that's uh, that's important for a state to be able to take steps along those lines to do that. And uh, what we had in 2018 was uh, the candidate for governor, Ms. Abrams, refused to concede at the end of the election, claiming that she didn't um, agree with the outcome. I'm sorry, 2016, uh, didn't agree um, uh, you know refuse to concede under the circumstances. It is not good when you have um, candidates of either political party refusing to concede questioning the authenticity or accuracy of a final vote count and it's important for all Georgians that we be able to trust our election results and even if your candidate of choice doesn 't win, you were able to to uh, recognize that um, that uh, Georgians voted that the accurate result has been provided. Uh, that there was not fraud that unduly influenced the outcome of the election, so that because ultimately we're, we are all Georgians, and um, and that's more important than uh, uh, arguing that uh, your party didn't win and therefore you you dislike the outcome. That's I think that that's very important to distinguish, and and um, and I believe that the Supreme Court's opinion uh, really gets to the heart of the matter. And when you look at the there is no impact and there is no intent that's a violation of Section 2, then, uh, then the outcome to, uh, to recognize that the law is valid, I think, is is appropriate.
1: The, um, it's interesting, Patricia. A couple of things I'd like to pick up on from that. Uh, it is interesting. It's, it kind of coincides with what Michelle said a minute ago the uh, lawyer who argued the case for uh, upholding the Arizona law, uh, was quite candid in his comments to the court saying, uh, if you overturn these laws, it's going to be harmful to Republican candidates. Um, I don't have his exact quote, but that is certainly a good paraphrase. But here's what's interesting about what Chuck Efstration just said, Patricia, is that it is certainly true that in 2016, Stacey Abrams said, I won't concede because I think uh, that, in fact— Um, As Secretary of State during the election cycle, Brian Kemp and his allies took steps that suppressed uh, votes that might have come to me in this election. She did say, I acknowledge he won. And so here's what I'm interested in. Um, So Abrams and her people at Fair Fight were um, criticizing the pre-election processes, which they think suppressed the vote. Whereas what's happening with SB-202 is looking at, um, is founded on this basis that perhaps the 2020 election was a rigged election and counted illegally and fake votes. It's a different, am I making a point here that resonates at all? Uh, uh,
0: Yes. Um, Well, I'll say that... um, So the state legislature, and legislators, especially Republicans, will say this, make changes to election law just about every cycle. Um, It's not unusual. I would say the breadth of these changes were unusual, and the nature of the process was unusual, um, and uh, also that the number of changes to election law in SB202 at many points seemed based on suspicions, rather based rather than based on data and evidence. Um, And I'll point to the drop boxes as an example. Um, We never saw as reporters evidence that any drop boxes were tampered with, maligned, stolen. Um, But there have been um, restrictions put on how many boxes counties can choose to have in their own counties for their own electors and voters. Um, And there, there are a number of instances throughout the bill where there were large hardcore, real changes made based on Republicans' suspicions. And many of those suspicions really were driven by Donald Trump um, in advance of the election and after the election. Um, Stacey Abrams will argue and Democrats will argue but there's a difference between voter suppression and there's a difference between people um, lying in their opinion about what happened in the last election. Um, I I think those are valid arguments, Um, but we do have a real problem. We have a huge problem in the state and the country with the faith of the vote. Um, It is easy, it has been easy for, um, Donald Trump to to place enormous doubts in Republican voters' minds. And state legislators, we heard in January, came in and said, we've got to do something. We've got to make those voters feel like we have something to take home to them to answer. Um, so the, the problem of, of trust in the vote is so foundational. Um, and I don't know that these changes made for Republicans are are not going to have the opposite effect on Democrats in 2022. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Chuck, uh, it's probably worth pointing out that after the 2016 election, a bipartisan uh, vote in the legislature did, in fact, change a number of the concerns that had been raised about voter registration and other issues that the Abrams people, uh, Chuck Williams, uh, 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 brought to the fore and and Republicans as well as Democrats agreed that some changes needed to be made back then. There's certainly not a whole lot of agreement that Senate Bill uh, 202 was a as uh, necessary in a bipartisan way. Chuck Williams, um, there's no question
2: about that, and it's been hard to get people on this side, both Democrats and Republicans, to talk about it in those terms. And you know, Senate Bill 202, the I mean, Patricia brings up an. Ex- extremely important point and a valid point about the drop boxes. You know, when you limit the drop boxes, the drop hours, the security, I mean, I went to every drop box in Muskogee County during the general election and during the Senate runoffs. Every single one of those was in a spot that was camered by, by cameras that were used on city, whether they be at a, a rec center or they were at the city government center or wherever, they were all camered. If anybody's got any questions, go to the video. The video in Muskogee showed nothing. I mean, so I mean, I just I mean that's where I go. I mean that's uh, that's just the point, and I think she, I think Patricia is just spot on about that that part of SB two hundred two.
1: Okay, I got to get to our final break of the show. Let me say, as we go to break, that we heard it in the in the Brian Kemp uh, commercial. We're going to hear it uh, throughout the campaign cycle from Republicans uh, uh, that SB two hundred two makes it easy to vote, hard to cheat. There will be debate about that moving forward for months to come, and we'll talk about that on Political Rewind. We'll be right back in a moment. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the, those of us who have either covered the uh, legislature as journalists or obviously uh, Michelle Au and uh, Chuck Efstration as members of the legislature know that the reality is that in a lot of ways it's, a, it's it kind of becomes like a family down there, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, journalist, staff member, or whatever. Everybody gets to know each other pretty well as people. And so when we lose someone uh, from that family— Um, it's a moment of reflection. And I know, Chuck Williams, you feel very strongly about the loss of Pete Robinson, a former legislature from your part of the state, uh, who went on to become one of the most successful uh, and powerful lobbyists at the state capitol. I covered him when he was a member of the legislature and always found him to be, among many other things, a wonderful person and a very, very canny, smart uh legislator chuck just take a moment uh, about pete well pete passed away
2: a week ago they buried him yesterday in the family the peterson family cemetery down in ailey which is where his mom's from and uh the memorial service is today at st luke the speakers are bill underwood the president of mercer uh um uh, Raulston, um david Ralston, governor deal and uh you know, that tells you the level of what's happening. I was standing next to Senator Chambliss at the graveside yesterday. When you looked around, Pete had an enormous effect. But one thing I'd like to say about Pete, and, and I knew him well, and, and I know a lot of folks did, and Pete and I talked on a pretty regular basis because he was always interested in what was going on in Columbus, even though he was in Atlanta most of the time, he kept a residence here. But Pete, in 94, he was Governor Miller's floor leader. He introduced the first flag change legislation and the one that failed, but that set the that set the groundwork for Governor Miller to come in and change to alter the Georgia flag. Pete thought it was right. He introduced that and he was one of the few white Democrats that supported it then when it did fail. And I think that's what you need to know about Pete. Pete was ahead of his time in a lot of ways, and then he became a very powerful guy who had a lot of say during Governor Deal's administration.
3: Pete, uh, if I could just jump in, Pete was not only uh, very powerful, uh, he did not let you know it when you met him. He was kind to everyone that he encountered, and I had the honor to serve with him on the Judicial Nominating Commission uh, uh, where which he co-chaired throughout Governor Deal's administration and the impact that uh, he had in making judicial recommendations for appointments uh, is seen across the state uh, as the Georgia Supreme Court and Court of uh, Court of Appeals were expanded. And so uh, Pete Robinson will be dearly missed. A tremendous man, true giant, giant in our state, and uh, and a wonderful human being.
1: And he died way too young. We have to say after a very short. Sixty-six. Um, Bill. What, one way I know that Pete became powerful is that when he was a legislator, it was easy to see him in the halls and talk to him a lot. Once he became a lobbyist, you didn't see him around at all. He, he, he was working quietly and privately <laughs> to get things done that he needed to get accomplished.
2: I'll share one story along that, and I think Souser nailed it on his, uh, on his obit that he wrote. I was talking to two lobbyists that were working in the issue opposite of Pete and it was a crossover day and they were standing there and Pete had not been around the Capitol much at all. Then all of a sudden Pete shows up on the third floor and one of those lobbyists looked at the other one and goes, man, we're in trouble, but that's not exactly <laughs> how they did it And, and it, it was pretty, it was pretty obvious. They, they could see the train that was coming. All
1: right. Um, uh, thank you for sharing those observations, uh, uh uh, about Pete, both of you. Um, uh, Patricia, when you were in Savannah, one of the people you talked to was Buddy Carter, First District Congressman. I, you describe him in your column as a fast-walking, Southern-drawn former pharmacist, <laughs> the grandson of sharecroppers, who was the first in his family to go to college. Uh, he is, a, uh, he is a, a native of Savannah, but he, ki- he kidded you over breakfast, that he isn't exactly well-liked in the liberal stronghold of Savannah. But but it's important to talk about him briefly because he's holding on to this notion that he just might be able to make a race for U.S. senator, but like everybody else, he's waiting for Herschel Walker to weigh in. Talk about that.
0: Yes, well, I'll tell you, Bill, it's not just a notion that he has. He has a staff. He has... Um, been traveling throughout the state, not just in his own district to um, gather support. And he has literally an announcement that he's running for Senate written on the shelf, ready to go in case Herschel Walker doesn't run. Um, but it speaks to the fact he doesn't know and he knows Herschel Walker very well. He, Buddy Carter doesn't know what Herschel Walker is going to do. We don't know exactly what he's going to do. So it, it has just frozen this field in a way Um, that is very strange from a man who lives in Texas and has not lived here since college. Um, It has really done a number on other Republicans who would like to take a run at that race. And for Raphael Warnock, being a freshman, uh, just two years in, once he runs for election, it's the very best time to knock off an incumbent is early in their their term. And, And other Republicans would love to have a better chance to do it than this.
1: Um, Chuck frustration. you know, Patricia makes an important point. A, a, somebody who's only going to be two years in by the time the the election comes along could be at his most vulnerable point. But Warnock is building up a big campaign fund. He's out there making news on a regular basis. He's becoming better and better known. How frustrating it is it for you as a Republican to see this field frozen by Herschel Walker, who we know— have no, under, no no notion of what he's going to do.
3: Well, I certainly agree. Senator Warnock is going to be a very formidable opponent. And I think what we're seeing for, from Republicans is really uh, two different ways to approach the question of whether Herschel Walker will run. So Gary Black is running <coughs> currently. The, the ag commissioner is saying, I'm in the race to stay in the race and I'm running hard. And then uh, you have Uh, Representative Carter, on the other hand, saying, I need to see the field before I make a decision about whether to get in. I think there's sound reasoning behind either approach. Uh, Ultimately, uh, we have qualifying, which in political timelines isn't too, too far away. Fundraising certainly requires a great deal of time and work and effort. And so I expect the field will really be developing here in the coming uh, weeks and months. I think that uh, uh, very quickly uh, we'll know who's truly in and, and who isn't.
1: Uh, Michelle, uh, Raphael Warnock has the biggest target on his back in the 2022 cycle of any uh, sitting uh, Democrat in the United States uh, Senate. He's going to be perhaps a formidable candidate, but Democrats are going to have to really work hard to make sure he can hold on to that seat.
4: I think you're right. Uh, I think that Senator Warnock is doing an incredible job. He's also doing a lot of uh, good sort of teamwork and co campaigning with uh, Senator Ossoff. Um, I think what we're going to see is that while the Republican field is uh, shaking itself out, and they can certainly take their time doing that, that uh, Senator Warnock is doing the work that we elected him to do. And he is energizing uh, the Democratic base who turned out for him in 2020, and the runoffs in 2021 and showing uh, us that he is doing the job that we elected him to do. So
1: Uh, Chuck, how do you—well, go ahead, Patricia, you get back into this, and then I'll go to Chuck Williams.
4: Just one quick note. Um, For
0: Buddy Carter, it's not because it's Herschel Walker. It's because Donald Trump wants Herschel Walker, and Buddy Uh. Carter doesn't want to run against Donald Trump, and that's his problem.
1: Yeah, we should point out that Buddy Carter was one of those uh, members of the House that did not vote to certify the election of uh, Joe Biden uh, for president and which, by the way, Chuck Williams, should he get into the U S Senate race? uh, If Walker or Trump's candidate Walker decides not to, Uh, it's going to be interesting to see with the impact that decision on Carter's uh, 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 part may play into his race in a, in an election.
2: It really will. And, you know, as we sit here and wait for Herschel Walker to make a decision, I look across the state line to Alabama, where I'm from, and I think we're still waiting for Charles Barkley, who for 20 years has said, I may come home and run for governor of Alabama. <laughs> so, you know, it's easy for an athlete and for particularly somebody of the stature of a Herschel Walker or a Charles Barkley to say, hey, I'm going to come run, run for a run for this office. But it's a lot harder to pull the trigger when they have to give up the lifestyle that they've become accustomed to to get more into the fishbowl in a different way. You know, and Barkley had the best reason to vote for him if he ran of anybody I've ever heard. He said, I've been really, really poor. Now I'm really, really rich. So I know how everybody feels.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, check Estration. We know how hard it is to be a first-time candidate, and for an athlete, athletes have had very mixed success in being able to win races they get into across the country.
3: Well, it it, pre- it presents certain opportunities. I think that sometimes voters maybe uh, would consider a candidate, whereas uh, you know, because of the athletic accomplishments, where, where they might, and some other circumstance, because of their partisan affiliation. I think that um, that uh, certainly the Uh, charismatic uh, ability to fundraise and and to really drive voters to the polls could be very powerful. On the other hand, as as Chuck was just pointing out, it is a big change. When you are under the microscope, a candidate, your uh, financial background, uh, things you've said in the past are are all uh, being analyzed. Uh, It can sometimes not be a a very fun position to be in. And and I think that all that is probably being weighed uh, right now uh, by Herschel Walker's team.
1: Oh, but Patricia Murphy, would the journalists in Georgia love to be able to cover a Herschel Walker Senate race? <laughs> Bill, you know,
0: I I already ordered Herschel Walker's book from Amazon and have read it and written a column about it. <laughs> we don't even need to wait for him to announce to start to dig in there. And and there really is, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to find out about Herschel Walker and the two... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Senator um, Al and Representative Estration know it is hard to campaign. It's hard to do it well. It's hard to be on your toes, to know your issues, to relate well to people, to get ambushed by strangers. They do it so well, and it's a hard job. And it's a lot easier than it looks. And um, and I think Walker will find that out quickly too.
1: It's a lot. I'm sorry. It's not
0: harder than it harder looks.
1: Than it looks. Is I think what it's you harder have, than it looks. Excuse uh, me. <laughs> That's fine. Um, We're completely out of time uh, for today's show. I'm really grateful to all of you for being part of this conversation. Michelle Au, thank you for making your first appearance on Political Rewind. We'll have you uh, back at some point if you're willing to join us again. Chuck Efstration, always a pleasure. Chuck Williams, thank you for joining us from down in Columbus. Patricia Murphy can't wait to hear about the next stop on your summer tour of Georgia. I went to a watermelon patch on a tour like that in the 92 campaign in mid-July. Don't do that, Patricia. It's the hottest I've ever been in my life. So stay away. <laughs> That's it for us today. We'll be back again on Monday. Until then, I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Stay healthy. Uh, the variants are out there, so you want to think about wearing a mask, even if you're vaccinated. And if you're not, what the heck is wrong with you? It is time to do it. See you all Monday.